Hello everyone and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me in the studio this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And joining us today, we have writer and trade unionist, Paul Embry. Hello. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing the Islamist assault on democracy, the persecution of Julian Assange and Google's woke AI. Now, if you're watching us on YouTube, make sure you give this video a like, subscribe to the channel, and it's really important that you click the bell so that you never miss an episode, but also so that other people find out about the show. It really helps us with the algorithm. So there was complete chaos uh, in the House of Commons earlier this week around a vote on a ceasefire in Gaza. Lindsay Hoyle has been accused of essentially breaking with parliamentary procedure by uh, calling a Labour amendment rather than a government government amendment. Now, we can get into that a little bit later, but the reason he gave, I think, is quite striking. Um, This is him speaking in the House of Commons uh, the day after making an apology. I never, ever want to go through a situation where I pick up a phone to find a friend of whatever side has been murdered by terrorists. I also don't want another attack on this house. I was in the chair on that day. I have seen, I have witnessed. I won't show the details, but the details of the things that have been brought to me are absolutely frightening on all members of this house, on all sides. So, Tom, I mean, He's talking there about an implied threat of violence. Mm-hmm. He doesn't use the I word, but we assume he's talking about Islamists. I mean, what do you think this means for democracy? No, it's really striking that because really when this whole circus first began, it was very much around the questions of parliamentary procedure and whether or not the Labour Party had lent on Lindsay Hoyle, who is the Speaker, but is a Labour MP as well, to essentially get, get them out of this hole that they found themselves mm-hmm. in in relation to the SNP amendment on the ceasefire in Gaza. And, you know, ripping up parliamentary procedure in order to essentially save Keir Starmer's bacon. But very quickly, and as we saw in the clip there, this much more sinister subtext started to emerge, um, which is around the threats and agitation which has been targeted at various MPs, although Labour MPs seems to be the focus of it. Um, Of course, there's been people who have been naysaying that today and suggesting that maybe the top of the Labour Party were leaning on those concerns to still meet a kind of political objective that may well be true but I don't think that gets away from the fact that there has been a a sustained assault on Westminster from Islamist quarters for some time now I mean if you think about even way back in 2009 with Stephen Timms being attacked by Al-Qaeda fangirl at his um, constituency surgery obviously the the murder of David Amos which has really focused minds a couple of years ago by an Islamist extremist Um, the Westminster Bridge attack which everyone seems to have forgotten about in 2017 um, which didn't claim the lives of any parliamentarians, but did claim the lives claim the lives of various members of the public and a police officer who was protecting Parliament. And of course, um, we've had Mike Freer's resignation more recently, or his announcement of his resignation, um, who was another person who was on the list of the Islamist extremists who murdered David Amos. So this is something which is obviously very real. Um, and it's, it's obviously worth saying that there have been various points in recent years in which MPs have, shall we say, cried wolf when it comes to intimidation Mm. and abuse from members of the public. If you think back to the Brexit period, you know, basically any backlash to their attempts to overturn democracy were treated as if it was a terroristic threat against them. There was this very clear attempt to conflate just protest and 
criticism of them with something more sinister. But yeah. I don't think you can say that in this instance. If, in fact, I think given the examples that I've pointed to and also given the, the, the obvious climate that exists in society at the moment, it's, it's not nearly the same thing. Is it being exploited by Labour for political reasons? Potentially. Mm. But that doesn't change the facts on the ground, I don't think. Yeah. And Paul, do you think among the political class itself, you know, Islamism is kind of the elephant in the room because, you know, we've had all kinds of examples in the past where Lindsay Hoyle was careful not to use the word. I don't think I heard it in any of the BBC coverage. Um, previously, when MPs have been attacked, they've tried to change the subject, talk about people being nice to each other on social media. Will our political class ever even say that this is a problem? Name the problem. They know it exists, but they are afraid to call it out. That's the truth of it. Um, probably one of the starkest examples of that mindset over the last couple of years, I think, has been the Batley school teacher, mm. um, who remains to this day in hiding. His career probably destroyed um, and may actually need to remain in hiding, him and his family, um, possibly for the rest of his life. Now, everybody knows where that threat came from. Local MPs knew where that threat came from. Teaching unions knew where that threat came from. Um, but everybody was afraid to, to say directly, this is the threat and we've got to challenge it and it's completely unacceptable. Uh, and it was very much a kind of, you know, let, let's try and be kind to each other and bring people together. Sometimes if there's a real threat, an extremist threat, you need to call it out for what it is. And in terms of the Hoyle stuff, I think whether in his own mind the threats were real or the threats were perceived, he clearly made completely the wrong decision, aside mm -hmm. from all the convention stuff. Mm. Because what he has done as the Speaker of the, the so-called Mother of Parliaments is sent a message to the world that we in this democracy, in this chamber, can be intimidated by the threats, the potentially violent threats of people outside, so much so that I as the Speaker will change the way we do business. Yeah. You know, we, we will amend parliamentary business, we will amend the order paper, we will amend what we debate and how we debate it because of, of these threats outside. Um, and I think the moment you, you do that, the moment you bow to that, you are going down a very, very dark alley. And as, as Tom touched on, I mean, you can't imagine ever a speaker doing it because, you know, there are Brexit supporters mm -hmm. outside who yeah. are a bit raucous. I mean, I'm a trade unionist. I've been on many, many demonstrations outside Parliament as a trade unionist. Um, I don't ever remember the speaker saying we're going to change the order of business yeah. today because <laughs> this lot are a bit noisy and a bit raucous. Um, but it seems to me that, you know, there's a, there's a real fear uh, because of, as I say, real well perceived because of the, the threat from Islamists. And, and I find that chilling, actually. Uh, and I, I think probably it makes his position untenable. We always say, don't we, as a country, government say time after time, you know, we'll never negotiate with terrorists. But yeah. we could just change the order of business in the yeah. commons because you're, you're worried about the threat. So it's, it's an appalling, appalling episode. Yeah. And and as Paul was suggesting, this isn't the only, you know, parliament is not the only uh, institution to capitulate to mm -hmm. Islamists. We've had schools capitulate to Islamists. We have the police capitulating constantly, it seems. I mean, while, um, you know, this debate was going on, uh, protesters projected the words from the river to the sea onto Big Ben. Now, you know, I don't think people should be arrested for that or, you know, have their heads kicked in for it. But if they'd have put a similar slogan, you know, that other another group in society considers to be <laughs> tantamount to a call for genocide, I think there would have been a reaction. Oh, absolutely. And the double standards where the police have been concerned have been brought into really stark relief because of the examples. We've seen it before, but we've seen more of them recently, of actually pro-Israel or Jewish demonstrators or kind of 
anti-Hamas demonstrators actually being cuffed, moved on, etc., in case they cause a problem at some of these supposedly pro-Palestine demonstrations. I think, I think going back to the contrast between way in which other, to be frank, phony threats to democracy and mm. actual very genuine threats to democracy in the form of Islamism, the, the contrast between how those is tre- have been treated is really quite striking. First of all, because when there was all of that kind of panic about a handful of sort of right-wing Brexit supporters who were hanging around outside Parliament, they were wearing the yellow vests, they were pretending to be kind of gilets jaunes and <laughs> yeah. so on, and they were, you know, shouting rude things at Anna Subri. That was suddenly a moment for deep soul-searching, but it was mm. also turned into this kind of phony moment of defiance. You know, we're not going to let these hard-right lunatics intimidate us and change how we do things here. Um you contrast that with what's going on here, it is just complete capitulation. You know, with Brexit, we saw the former Speaker rip up parliamentary process to try and thwart who they thought were the mob outside. Yeah. Um, now we have a situation where you have a Speaker in a very um, emotional and very cowardly fashion ripping up parliamentary procedure to appease those he sees as the barbarians <laughs> at the gates, but he won't name. It's a, it's a really quite stark contrast. And there are a lot of people, sort of Corbynistas, et cetera, who are running around trying to suggest this is just really anti-democratic. This is an attempt to demonise and silence the pro-Palestine protesters and so on. Um, I think that's incredibly disingenuous. I mean, there's always a sort of there's always been an element of a certain section of the House of Commons who will treat any protest against them as tantamount to a threat of violence. There's this video doing the rounds of it's the office in Glasgow of Labour MSPs were about 30 largely kind of pensioners yeah. <laughs> um, broke in, wandered in, held up their placards and were eventually escorted out by the police. That was presented as if it was a kind of alarming terrorist attack by some people. So obviously there are terrible excesses of this. But when you hear... Lindsay Hoyle talking there in the House of Commons, when you hear some of the threats which have been reported to various people in the media, when you hear some of the stories which are circulating, these people are not scared about those 65-year-old kind of Amnesty International types showing up outside of their constituencies. It's the threat of Islamist extremism. And it's a threat that is very real. This is not an academic discussion. This is not something which people are fearful about the climate in which we are in and how that might Mm. lead to something. This is a movement a nebulous movement but movement nonetheless which has menaced and in some cases spilled the blood of members of parliament's colleagues in recent years so to to pretend like that's not a problem i mean we've come to expect it at this point but given how directly it affects mps for them to still bury their heads in the sand now i think speaks to how deep that cowardice runs at this point um I mean, the only, the only thing I would say, I'd push back a little bit on, I think we need to be careful about um, portraying all of the protesters, the, the pro-Palestine, uh, pro-Palestine protesters, um, and I'm not saying that Tom was doing this, but I, I think there has been a bit of a narrative in parts of the media um, to dismiss all of the protesters and portray all of them as, you know, violent, would be terrorists. Um, the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, for example, uh, has, has got uh, very strong links historically with the trade union movement in Britain. And I know people uh, who you know, nobody would ever think of classing as a terrorist, people in my own union, the Fire Brigades Union, uh, who are supporters of, Pal- of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, who have been on those marches, may even have actually you know, used the slogan from the river to, to the sea. And whilst undoubtedly some people on those marches and some people using that slogan are Jew haters and and would, I think, like to see Israel wiped off the map and probably Jews wiped off the map. 
Um, I think also there are people, genuine people, who are, rightly or wrongly, very angry about Israel's actions. Um, and, you know, they, some of them, for example, will believe in a one-state solution with Jews and Arabs living side by side on that land. We might think that's completely fanciful, but they might use the slogan in that context, you know, Palestine should be free in that context. So whilst I completely agree that there is a threat out there, mm. um, and it's a threat that much of our political class is alive to, but is afraid to talk about, I think at the same time, we need to, we need to accept that the, the threat doesn't come from all quarters of that particular movement and everybody who's taken part in those mm. protests. I, yeah. I, I do think that's an important point. I mean, in a sense, mm. What I was getting at was the fact that when people try to suggest that the criticisms and the concern, specifically coming from kind of Islamist extremist anti-Semitism, anti-Israel activism, they're trying to say, oh, they're just trying to demonise all of us, is obviously not the case. I don't think any of these MPs are running scared of their local kind of handful of Corbynistas, although that does yeah. happen in some cases. But I also think that in terms of the broader movement, there has been a remarkable... Because I, I do take the point, Paul, that not everyone who goes on these demonstrations are anti-Semites who just want to see Israel wiped off the map or whatever. But I, given how long this has been going on and given how for how long people have been pointing out what this slogan means to the vast majority of British Jews in this country, given so many people have pointed out the various groups which have been involved in these demonstrations, there was that Telegraph analysis talking about half of them had links to Hamas, quite close links to Hamas, given the fact that you, every Saturday it feels like someone can be found chanting Arabic war slogans about the slaughter of Jews. At what point are you just, are these people just failing to take any of those considerations seriously? And I think the, the most charitable reading I could have of it is that they're taking those allegations potentially less seriously than they would about being soft or being too close to or being associated with individuals with views about another minority. Um, that I think is, is inarguable at this point is that if these groups of people suddenly found themselves in a political movement in which they were constantly sharing a space and demonstrations with Nick Griffin from the BNP they'd probably mm. be more perturbed than they have been by the fact that they seem to find themselves in the company of Hamas fanboys every weekend but I do take the point that not everyone's in it for the same reasons as the people who Lindsay Hoyle is referring to of course yeah if you're anything like me these cold winter months are the hardest time of year to stay healthy the sun is barely out and it feels like you're constantly suffering from colds and flus. Healthy habits quickly become a chore. But looking after yourself should make you feel better, not worse. That's why I've started drinking AG1. AG1 is by far the most convenient daily nutrition supplement that's out there. Just one scoop contains 70 high quality ingredients, all designed to meet your baseline nutritional needs. Lately, I've loved kicking off my day with AG1 alongside my usual morning coffee. All I need to do is mix one scoop of AG1 with water and I'm all set. It literally takes less than a minute. AG1 provides me with all the minerals and vitamins I need to keep me sharp and focused throughout the day. AG1 releases energy in a slow and sustained way, so I don't have to worry about crashing midday like you do with caffeine. Personally, my favourite thing about AG1 is that it massively cuts down my stress levels. My days are generally pretty busy, but thanks to AG1, my mood is always even. AG1 keeps me clear-headed and alert, even when life gets hectic. I have complete confidence in AG1. All of its high-quality ingredients are rigorously tested and verified, so you can rest assured that you get exactly what's on the label, and that all of it is good for you. So if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 today and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to drinkag1.com forward slash spiked. That's drink, 
ag1.com forward slash spiked. Check it out. Um, so Julian Assange has had his last ditch appeal heard uh, this week, two days in the high court. This could determine whether he's extradited to the US or not. If he is extradited, he faces potentially 175 years in prison. Um, and essentially, this is under the Espionage Act, but really it's for publishing materials that um, governments don't want to be out there. But what have you made of, of, of this case? I mean, it does seem like it hasn't got the attention that maybe it should deserve, given the scale, given the stakes here. Yeah, and, and what I find really dispiriting is the fact that British journalists who should be all over this because, I mean, this, this should be their bread and butter, mm, the yeah. people who should be defending the right of, you know, journalists, if you want to describe Assange as a journalist, to, to uh, you know, be able to, to publish material that comes their way and to, to root around uh, in places where people don't want them to root around. Um, you would think that they would be coming to his aid and shouting about this from the rooftops. But, I've, you know, I've been depressed really at the, the, the lack of coverage that there's been. It seems to me quite obvious that it is a, if it goes ahead, it will be a political extradition. Um, I think that's quite obvious. And, you know, what, what was his crime? Well, he published lots of materials that the US clearly didn't want to be placed in the public domain. They've argued that he imperiled people's lives. I'm not convinced there's any real hard evidence that, uh, that he did that. What he did do was to expose um, things like extraordinary rendition and torture and what was going on at Guantanamo Bay. Uh, and he may have done that in quite a crude way, um, but you know I think he was he was entitled to do that. Um, and my fear is that it's going to have you know potentially a, a chilling effect mm. if if it goes ahead. You know those journalists who perhaps may have the bravery and the gumption to to do something like this in the future will will just steer clear of it. And I just think the whole. Uh, US-UK treaty on extradition is very lopsided, actually. If you look at the figures, um, we've sent them lots more people than mm. they've ever sent us. Um, and I think actually quite sinister that someone can be, someone may have committed what the US considers to be an offence in the UK and may be living in the UK at the time. But America can say, we want that person. Yeah. And you've got to, you've got to send him to us. Um, so... You know, I, I think it does not fit with our tradition as a country that we like to claim as our tradition in terms of free speech and freedom of mm -hmm. expression and the ability to be able to challenge the establishment and so on. Um, and if it goes ahead, I think it would be a very, very sad day for, for British freedom and for British journalism. And I hope he wins the case. Yeah. Tom? No, I think it comes down to that most fundamental argument, doesn't it? Which is that you don't have to agree with his methods. You don't have to like what his political views were to recognise that this is a clear-cut case of press freedom being under threat. And you don't just have to take our word for it. I mean, this is something that's been clear for so long. This is why the Obama administration, Department of Justice, chose not to pursue him under the Espionage Act when they had the chance in 2013 because of the fact that they realised that if they were to do this, if they were to make just publishing formally classified information was in effect an act of treason or espionage, mm. then they would also have to go after the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian. Um, it would just open Pandora's box in relation to cracking down on the press. And I'm really interested in Paul's point about the, the silence of the kind of journalistic establishment and, yeah. and the reasons for that, um, because of the fact that it's, it's, it's depressingly straightforward to work out why. I mean, first of all, is the fact that he's become 
a slightly more partisan figure. I mean, he's, he's kind of waxed and waned. He's more or less stayed the same, but in terms mm. of who his cheerleaders might happen to be has shifted over the years. He was very much someone who was seen as a kind of, was fated by the sort of liberal left for a long time. Obviously, many of his investigations were in partnership with Alan Rushbridge's Guardian. Um, but at the same time, as we move towards the Trump era and because of things like the WikiLeaks exposés of John Podesta's emails, um, which was very seen as very damaging to the Democrats in America, suddenly became this kind of pariah, quasi-Trumpist, mm. Putin apologist figure and everyone turned against him. There's also something which is um, the liberal establishment has become particularly besotted with the security services in recent years, yeah. more so in America, arguably, because they were seen as the kind of tip of the spear of the resistance mm. for many time against Trump. Uh, but that's something that's definitely true here as well. And I think the other thing is this tendency on the part of sort of elite corporate journalists to really gatekeep as well. They, yeah. This idea that he's not really a journalist, you know, therefore our principle shouldn't apply in this particular case. If you don't have a job at the Washington Post or the Guardian, then can you really be defended in the same way? I think there's there's a, a big dose of that as well. But Snobbery. Yeah. No, and it's and I think it's it's really telling that there are so many people who would see themselves as again sort of standard bearers of sort of liberal mm. British tradition who have been at best silent about this particular case. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's even interesting, you know, talking about how he's viewed through the kind of partisan lens to see how Trump has reacted to him. Mm. Because in 2010, um, when, you know, the first major WikiLeaks stories came out, Trump said that Assange should get the death penalty. By 2016, in his during his election campaign, he's saying, I love WikiLeaks because they exposed all that stuff about Hillary Clinton. And then a bit into his administration, he is... The one, you know, ultimately he's in charge of the administration that uh, goes after Assange uh, in 2019. Um, they even actually have very high level discussions about kidnapping him from the Ecuadorian embassy, having him assassinated. And then slightly further on, Trump considers pardoning him. <laughs> so, you know, he's again, he's a polarizing figure. But I guess that's just a reminder of why it's so important when it comes to these questions of free speech. You know, it's got to be about the principle. It can't be, you know... Do you like Julian Assange? Do you like, you know, do you agree with the the stories that he's published, the targets that he's uh, taken on? It has to be, well, he was essentially publishing something. That is all he has done. That's all he's guilty of. Um, and he should be defended. He should not be in this position. And, and I mean, possi possibly if he were a US citizen, would be covered by the First Amendment, yeah. maybe, and, and, and may not be in the position that he finds himself in, in Britain. But no, I, I completely agree. Um, you know, we can't we can't on the one hand um, trumpet ourselves in the West as being much better than that lot over the other side mm -hmm. of the planet. You know, the, the Chinas and places like that, because you know, we don't chow political journalists and we mm -hmm. don't put them down in dungeons and we allow dissent and we allow freedom of expression and we allow scrutiny of, of government decisions. I mean, this this was information that related to you know, very controversial actions actually by the US government. If you look at some of the controversial actions around Afghanistan and Iraq over the years, um, and, you know, if you look at things like rendition uh, and torture and so on and what happened at Abu Ghraib and, and what's gone on at, at Guantanamo over the years, thank God there are people out there who are willing to go sniffing around some of that stuff. Yeah. And and I actually think it makes us a better 
society makes us better countries in the West because of it, because it does keep government on their toes. It does make them realise there are conventions that they have to abide by, that they can't engage in some of the stuff that other countries might engage in, um, in terms of human rights abuses and stuff. So, so all power to him. And as I say, I think it would be an appalling day if he, if he loses and is extradited. So Google's uh, Gemini AI system has been found to be ultra-woke, essentially. People have been asking it to depict historical figures, and it seemingly cannot portray a selection of people um, and have them all be white. So people have asked for the founding fathers of America. They've turned out to be a very racially diverse bunch. Um, People have asked for Vikings, pictures of the Pope, all of them turning out to be... um, Did you know it? Either Indian, black, East Asian, none of them white. Even Nazis it portrays as people of colour. Paul, I mean, this speaks to a sort of broader obsession with diversity among the political class or the media class or the elites. I mean, what do you make of it? I mean, they seem like desperate to rewrite history, rewrite, um, you know, classic fiction. And now, yeah, now we're seeing it even in AI. Well, on one level, it's hilarious, isn't it? I mean, you see some of these these pictures, and as you say, the the founding fathers included black women, apparently, um, and Vikings and, and whatever. And and it's actually quite funny. And you think, look, the company deserves all the all the flack they get, mm-hmm. and they deserve the the backlash and the humiliation that they're they're currently experiencing. Um, but on another level, I think there is a there is a serious, but there is a serious point about whether or not you know it, it's right for um, big tech for uh, ent- the entertainment industry and whatever to essentially rewrite history and to present history in a way that simply isn't accurate, but they do it because they want to, you know, promote diversity. Mm. Now, I think unless you're unless you're producing something that's science fiction or fantasy or whatever, where of course you know normal rules don't apply. Um, then actually you probably do have some sort of moral duty, especially if it's something that kids might read or, mm. or watch or whatever, to make sure you anchor it in some sort of reality. Um, but we are, we're just witnessing uh, industries left, right and centre, um, which are, are doing this stuff because they want to flaunt their progressive credentials and they want to, to virtue signal. Um, and there is a danger that if they aren't checked on it, um, then it just becomes the natural thing to send stuff down the memory hole uh, and to say, no, this is how history was because mm. this is the more palatable version today. Uh, and I think there's a real question about whether or not, you know, we should we should allow them to, to get away with that. And it's become almost a thing. Like, I describe it as a nervous tick. It, it, it's like the first thing now for our political and cultural elites and our big corporations, the first priority has to be diversity. And in many cases, it's not actually diversity. It's hyper-diversity. It's yeah. a kind of in-your-face, completely over-the-top diversity. And, we, you know, you see it with the New Year's Eve fireworks and you see it with the new rail lines in London and football and museums and, and so on. Um, and it just doesn't cut with most ordinary people out there who have no particular problem with with diversity, but they also have a bit of respect for reality and they don't want this kind of thing shoved down their throat the whole time. And it's a bit like, I just feel the whole thing has become just a relentless political lecture. And when you do that, when you bombard people with it, you end up just driving them away. It's, it's a bit like, you know, being a Jehovah's Witness knocking at someone's door. You know, you, people might be open to religious ideas um, if the person approaching them, 
you know, does it in a in a subtle way. But if all you do is just bang the people over the over the head, say, read this Bible or read this copy of Watchtower <laughs> or whatever, and just yeah. badger them with it, in the end they go, well, you just shut up about it, kind yeah. of thing. Uh, and I think we're seeing the same with this agenda. Most people I speak to are just sick and tired of it, frankly. Yeah, and and some, I mean, in terms of sort of tech angle, I mean, this is obviously a really absurd and obvious example of how AI is being programmed to be woke. Mm-hmm. But presumably, you know, this will happen in more subtle ways. And, you know, whatever the current values of the Silicon Valley elites are just going to be writ large in, you know, our Google searches mm-hmm. in how we use AI to generate things, all that kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. And it seems like this was actually a, an overcorrection from a, <laughs> from a perceived failure on their part to present more diverse uh, images and you think that's not what surely these tools are there to do they're there yeah. to be fed all of this training data and then to spit out as accurate and as useful an image or a piece of text or whatever as possible it's that fascinating way in which every kind of area of life the has this demand placed on it now to mouth the right slogans to mm. project the right image to disseminate the right messages effectively and i'm not trying to say it's some sort of you know top down centralized sort of affair but in a really decentralized and nebulous way you have a kind of elite ideology which has to be transmitted in every mm. form of life you see that in the way in which the arts have been sort of relentlessly politicized where there's nothing which isn't there which everything is kind of agitprop now yeah and the fact that that's even creeping into ai is, is really telling it's not a great it, advert for this technology that we're always being talked about but it's just why why is there no sphere of life no even kind of discrete technological task which doesn't have to bow down to the gods of diversity it doesn't make any sense i think you're right it's an instinctive reaction you know it's the default for 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 people in positions of of power and influence in political life in corporations and so on and i tweeted recently i heard uh, an interview with uh, an, an official from uh, rugby league, one of the top officials in the governing body of rugby league uh, on BBC Radio, and he was asked, you know, why should people watch rugby league? What's the great thing about it? Now, there's lots of things you can say about rugby league. You can say it's fast, you can say it's brutal, you can say it's thrilling, you can say it's physical, all of those things. Uh, and his response was, it's diverse. The first word he used, <laughs> it's a diverse That's... sport. Now, if you went to most rugby league fans in the, the, the north and whatever and said to them, why do you watch this sport? I suspect not one of them yeah. would say, oh, because it's diverse. You know? But, <laughs> but the, the, the person representing the governing body clearly felt, it's almost like the default position has to yeah. be, that has to be my first answer. Um, and, and it's become all-encompassing, I think, for, for some of our elites. And, and as I say, just doesn't resonate with ordinary people at all. And ethnic minority ordinary people as well. You know, just yeah. bit, this is the other thing. This is often presented this discussion as a sort of like moan of white males who are upset that not every single family on a television ad is <laughs> immaculately Anglo-Saxon anymore. That's not what this is about at all. This is a really exactly. bizarre. This idea that your average um, black Brit or Asian Brit or whatever is walking around terribly upset because of the fact that they're not adequately portrayed in AI images of the founding fathers is absolutely mm. ridiculous. I mean, it's patronising exactly right. in the extreme. And yet we still go along this particular route. There's also something where this desperation to rewrite history, this new idea that like accuracy, historical or otherwise, is like racist now, effectively, um, also leads to the sort of, surely, the sort of downplaying of historical injustices. There was one example, one of the sort of tech journalists who were having a lot of fun on these AI generators over the past couple of days, just typed in something along the lines of US senators from the 1800s. Naturally, it spat out an Asian American, a Native mm. American woman in full headdress, <laughs> and everything. And then that's to point out that, of course, you know, the first female senator who happened to be a white woman was in ni- was in nineteen twenty. Mm. So there's something where if you 
desperate constantly to say, well, actually, the senators have always been really diverse, or actually, there were black Roman centurions who were all over Britain, and actually this, and actually that. You're giving a warped view of history, which surely almost implies that um, the historic injustices that we're supposed to talk mm. about all the time almost didn't exist. It doesn't make mm. any sense, but yeah. a lot of this stuff doesn't make much Sometimes sense, does it? Borders on the, on the ridiculous. I, I, I wrote a little while ago when ITV a couple of years ago made a remake of The Darling Buds of May. It's called The Larkins which is set in 1950s rural Kent, which mm -hmm. is obviously probably as white a community as you're ever likely to see. <laughs> um, but one of the, the main characters, Charlie, was West Indian and the brigadier was Asian and the school teacher was also Asian. And I think it just insults people's intelligence. Nobody's saying, of course, that, you know, black and Asian actors, you know, shouldn't have the right to appear in productions. But if I just think when you've got something like that, for example, which millions of people have read and seen over the years, it's clear that the producers were trying to change it, not because it added anything to the yeah. story, but yeah. because they were trying to send a political message. Um, and I just, as I said, I just think in the end that insults people's intelligence. There should never be barriers to, to, to people from whatever background pursuing their career, actors, entertainers and whatever. But at the same time as producers, you do have, as I say, a, a, a duty um, to at least try to make the thing realistic, unless, as I say, you're doing science fiction or fantasy. And no one does that now. Stuff is just going down the mem memory hole and historical, historical reality, I think, is just being reinvented. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.